Again, I invite you to take your Bible, I hope you have one, and go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Took a little bit of a break from the Gospel of John. I'm looking forward to getting back there. Um, but I'm going to preach a sermon largely to set up communion for us. We postponed it a week because of last week's unexpected snowstorm. At least it caught us a little bit off guard. And uh, so many of you faithfully braved the elements in the weather and you came, but we thought it was imprudent to get the service in and get you home. And so, Lord willing, we can do communion today. And so I wanted to draw your attention to that. Next week, we're going to be hearing from Brother John Anderson, who we, Lord willing, as a church, will affirm as one of our next elders in our church. So he'll be sharing next week along with myself. And then Brother Steve prayed. You'll see a gentleman next to Shane who looks like could be his doppelganger with the matching beards and all that. His name is Ben Mills. And ben is from a church in Ontario called Coburg Baptist Church. He's on a sabbatical, and their church has sent him here for three weeks. I don't know if that's punishment or exile or whatever it is, um, but he's here with us, and um, he'll be preaching on the 23rd, and so we're glad that Ben is here. Coburg uh, Baptist Church there has been a wonderful supporter to Mile One, loves our church, prays for us regularly. When we do our prayer calls every week, every time we do it, someone from their church is on that prayer call And so it's really great. And then uh, what I plan to do after that for all of March and leading into Easter is I'm going to do a mini-series on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. So that's what we're going to try and do, try and unpack that for you, um, the different things that Christ said on the cross as we make our way into the Easter season. And then, Lord willing, after that... We'll get back to John's gospel, and we'll be visiting our seventh and final sign of John's gospel, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, which I can't wait to get back to. If you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 8. In regards to communion, I want to know what your estimation of Jesus is. Because today, on the second Sunday of February, we're going to remember the price that was paid for our freedom. So that is what we're going to do. If you're here, we're going to celebrate communion as a church together. And for any of you and all of you who believe in Jesus, now listen, track with me through this. You believe in Jesus. What that means is you have trusted him with your life. Now go through this in your mind and see if you answer in the affirmative. You have trusted Jesus with your life. You have admitted both your sin and your sinfulness to Christ. You've confessed to him that you can't fix yourself. In fact, you need Jesus. You need Jesus to forgive you and forgive your sin, to save you and to keep you. And if that is true, if you could say, yes, I, I, that is me, that's where I'm at, then today is a very special day. Today we honor Christ. We remember who he is, what he's done, how our lives are now lived in the shadow of his love. Furthermore, because of Jesus, we trust his word, the Bible. We order our lives around him and what he tells us because we know we can trust him. We know he always wants what's best for us. You believe that Jesus will never lie to you, that he'd never leave you, that he's there for you no matter what you face, up and down, good or bad, ugly or indifferent. 
But I wonder, as we come to communion on this Sunday, is when was the last time you actually thought all that through? See, it's easy here on a Sunday for me to rattle all these things off and with everybody around to go, yes, 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 yes. But when was the last time you really walked yourself through that? In other words, what's your estimation of Jesus? What's your value of Jesus? For me, I can never come to communion, and I have said this to you after being here for five years, you know this, my mind always goes to Remembrance Day. I always think on Communion Sunday of Remembrance Day. And of course, there's, for us in Newfoundland, we have kind of two Remembrance Day. It's not just November the 11th, maybe even more prominently in the psychosis of anyone who's truly a Newfoundlander is that of July 1st. Because July 1st is so much more than just Canada's birthday for us. That is the commemoration of our biggest loss of life in any war. And we honor those who died. We honor those who live and presently serve those. We honor the memory of the past and the present. And we're forced in a way, aren't we, on those two days, to think of the cost of our freedom. But if I can be a little bit transparent and a little bit honest... I'm challenged, and I think that's the reason why for me I grew up in church. One of the things I hate more than anything is when anything we do in church becomes mundane. It just becomes something we do, and we we can put our mind into neutral and almost just coast through all the different things we do. And for me, communion can't be that. I floated through too many times of these things, and I get a bit challenged and a bit uncomfortable because when I tell you about how much July 1st means to me or November of the 11th means to me, the tragedy and the honesty is that often I might only think about those who served and died and those who presently serve on those two days. I don't know how often I think about this all the other 363 days of the year. And it might be because I lack a good estimation of the cost that was paid for my freedom. Now this might shock you. I I did some study. In World War I, 16.5 million human beings died. 67,000 of those were from Canada. In a costing sense... They say that in 1917, it cost just the nation of America $20 billion in 1917. That would be almost a half a trillion dollars today. In World War II, 63 million human souls died. 45,000 were from Canada. And again, just in regards to cost to America, they say that the cost of the Second World War in today's money works out to be over $4 trillion. But stop with me and think about the men and women who did this, the government leaders. They had homes and jobs and wives and husbands and moms and dads. They were sons and daughters. And just like you and I, as we think about it, they had dreams. They had bucket lists. And yet in our very country, how many of these 67,000 and 45,000 and since then through the Korean War and the Vietnam War and all these other different wars, how many have chosen to volunteer their time on our behalf? They chose to give up everything to defend a cause. And yet how many of them really thought about the estimation of what it was going to cost? 
In fact, if you read the books, my my father-in-law, who is a Korean war vet, loves to read books about the different wars, and he will always tell you that we underestimated the cost. Yet, they also never possibly dreamed about the glorious benefits of fighting for, for freedom. And I want you to think about that. In our short little passage in Matthew chapter 8, you're going to see Jesus exercise authority in the area of discipleship. And I promise this means something to our gathering for communion. Matthew, I told you last week in the last couple of weeks, writes his gospel because he wants every one of you and I to know Jesus is the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 1, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And he does this by showing how Jesus, remember in chapters 1 to 4, he's authoritatively announced. Joseph dreams of him. Angels announce him, culminating in chapter 4 with his his baptism. And God the Father himself says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. I am pleased with him. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus authoritatively speaks. Now in Matthew chapter 8, 9, and 10, He authoritatively acts. Now, if you have a study Bible at all, if you look, just take note of Matthew chapter 8, you probably have a whole bunch of headings. At the beginning of the chapter, it says, Jesus cleanses a leper. Then there's the faith of a centurion. Then it's Jesus heals Mary in verses 14 to 17. Then in probably your study Bible, in verse 18, it says, the cost of following Jesus. What's your estimation of Jesus as we come to communion? So let me read this. In the midst of Jesus healing, he's now entered Peter's house and he saw his mother-in-law. And all of this is what's happening in the background. In verse 18, our Bible says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That means to the other side of Galilee. He's going to get in a boat and he's going to go to the other side. And as he's doing this, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher... I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus said to him in verse 20, I think a peculiar response. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then verse 21, we're told about a second man. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And in verse 22, I think, depending on how you look at this, You might think this is a very harsh way to respond to this. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. This is a very peculiar passage. There are two disciples in here, two men who come to Jesus and basically make him an offer. And that's important to remember As we come to the table of the Lord, because I have two very simple points to set this up, and then we're going to celebrate together. Number one, overestimating what you bring to Jesus. I think the first man comes and overestimates what he brings to Jesus. Jesus has been preaching and healing. It's been an amazing display of authority and power. If anything else, Jesus draws a crowd wherever he goes. Whether you like him or don't like him, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, everywhere he goes, a crowd forms. And you'll see a consistent pattern in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that every time this crowd forms, Jesus tends to, in the vernacular of today, split. He tends to leave. 
And that's because he knows men's hearts and minds. Remember what John, the beloved disciple, told us at the end of John chapter 2? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man, which is of little surprise considering he created us. So he sees this crowd, and they're looking, basically, remember in John chapter 6, that's exposed. They wanted the stuff, they wanted the miracles, they wanted all the things that Jesus could offer, but they weren't really interested in Jesus himself. And see, that's why I ask, do you really love Jesus? Or are you merely in love with Jesus' stuff? See, in Matthew chapter 8, it preps us for communion because he gets in this boat. He's going to head over to actually the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he does, this scribe, now don't miss that. That's not just any word. This scribe comes from out of the crowd and makes what seems to him like, I'm sure, and everyone around him thought, man, this is, can, look who's coming to Jesus now and offering to serve him. So you've got to stop and consider this. Anywhere in the New Testament where you read the word scribe, it's usually not attached with a positive example. Scribes are the ones often attacking Jesus or challenging his teaching. They challenge his activities. They challenge his miracles. A scribe is trained in Hebrew and Hebrew law. He's often one, one of the translators, one of the guys that would copy the different manuscripts. Every detail of it would have been familiar to him. Rabbis and teachers, by the way, of that day, when they became famous, it was common, once you garnered a name for yourself, that then you garnered groupies or followers. It's no different than our world today. Politicians, athletes, rock stars, movie stars. Once you're famous, then you see your Twitter followers go up, and your Facebook friends explode, and your Instagram gets more popular. And so here is this guy making an offer. And he's sincere, he's respectful, and I even believe he's genuine. But look what Jesus says to him. He says, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, this well-meaning, respectful, sincere, genuine scribe comes and offers to follow Jesus, and yet Jesus seems to give him a qualifier. He's not like, oh, high five, fist pump, come. Listen, let's plan out the next few years of your life. You need to read between the lines. You see, the scribe is overestimating what he brings. He's almost there going, Jesus, this is your lucky day. I've decided to follow you. But Jesus is God. And he sees into a man or a woman's heart. And he makes the only statement that would expose what he was really thinking. He says, basically, if you want to follow me, you need to realize it's a radical commitment to give up all of the things of the world. This reminds me of how Jesus confronts the rich young ruler later in this gospel and in Luke and in Mark. And how Paul would confront Timothy and he would expose Demas. Jesus says to this likely wealthy and well-respected man, give up the world for me. Become nothing for me. Don't overestimate yourself. You have nothing to offer me. Your righteousnesses are a filthy rag to me. You're still a sinner in need of me. Jesus, the creator of the world, lived on this world with no possessions, no home, no retirement plan. And when he was crucified, he owned nothing but the clothes on his back. And so Jesus looks at this scribe and says, are you willing to do that for me? 
Now listen, friends, I'm not saying that Jesus says you can't own a home or a car. He doesn't tell us to go and sell everything and live as paupers. What I am saying is because Jesus says and what he means for this man and for us to realize is we have nothing to offer. So why do we seek to cling to anyone or anything that will keep us from Jesus? That's what he's saying. This table and your estimation of Jesus and this is connected to your estimation of yourself. You don't bring anything. You don't bring anything. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this once, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. See, this table means something to us when we understand, I have nothing Jesus has everything. Don't be guilty of thinking too much of ourselves and not enough of Jesus. Do we think Jesus should be blessed to have us in his army? Yet all the while, we actually love ourselves and the world more than Jesus. Jesus gave up everything for us to give us everything. And on this communion Sunday, don't overestimate yourself, your goodness, or your sin, by the way. Some of you might think, I'm not bad, but I'm not totally bad. And some of you might be thinking, no, Steve, have you knew how bad I am? And the answer to that is wrong. Sinclair Ferguson writes, there is far more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. What a beautiful statement. So don't overestimate yourself. The only way to estimate yourself rightly is to get your estimation of Jesus right. Now notice, here's my second point, and then we're going to get to the table of the Lord. Don't overestimate what you bring to Jesus, and then don't underestimate what Jesus' love will do to you. That's our second person. In the first case, one guy overestimates himself. In the second case, someone underestimates Jesus. We've got a regular guy here. Guy just shows up after the scribe says what he does. Then this other guy comes and says, Lord, I'm going to follow you too, but I need to go bury my dad. And I don't know about you, but One of the reasons this passage has stood out to me all through my teen years, through my young adult years, is because there are two passages in the Bible that have always bugged me. One is the lady, that woman that comes and asks Jesus to heal, and and he says, I can't do that for the house of Israel because he about the dogs. I can't go to the dogs. And, and she, she doesn't seem to be phased by that and says, but even the dogs get crumbs that fall from the master's table. And that one, it just seems harsh. If you don't study it out and you realize that Jesus is actually extending love. And here, this seems harsh. Any of you that have experienced the loss of a parent or a loved one knows. Imagine if you came to me or anybody else or to one of your friends and said, Listen, I want to come to your house for dinner. But, but listen, my, my, my dad has died and I need to do the funeral. And the response was, Let the dead bury the dead. You come and have dinner with me. Not one of you would go, Oh man, Steve really loves us. This was a problem, you know. Jesus' response seems heartless, cold, and extreme. When you read this, what does your heart say to you? Young people, do you wrestle with this? I remember what it was like to be your age and to wrestle with these hard passages of the Bible. But you've got to understand what the man is truly saying. 
You see, in their culture in the first century in Judaism, there was this honor system. And, and part of or connected to your inheritance was the way you kind of treated your parent after they died. And it actually could turn into a full-blown competition between the siblings, especially in birth order, as to who was going to get dad's stuff. And reading between the lines, this wasn't just about a guy mourning. He's basically saying, Lord, listen, I want to serve you, but I got to do the right thing over here because that's my meal ticket. And that's the way I'm going to get my inheritance. And so in this case, this was about family money, not about family mourning. And so Jesus' response is actually hyperbole. It's not a literal statement. Basically, Jesus is saying, let those who don't understand the reality of the world deal with the tragedies of the world. You come follow me and let's show the world the difference. That's why your Bible is filled for Christians. That it says we feel the sting of death, but it doesn't overpower us. Because for Christians, death is never goodbye. It's always see you later. Amen? Oh, that was weak. I have to tell you, remember what I preached last week when when Charles Spurgeon said that he had to preach his first funeral? So he went to the Bible to learn of Jesus and how Jesus preached a funeral sermon. And he was shocked to discover Jesus never preached a funeral sermon. Because every funeral that Jesus ever went to, he busted it up and someone rose from the dead. This is what he did. And so Jesus is saying, listen... Don't get hung up in the tragedies that are unexplainable where you, even in your pain, are still jockeying for position. Come follow me and let's show the world how I have conquered death. He's not teaching us to ignore or dishonor our parents. He's not forbidding us from attending our parents' funeral or taking care of each other and our parents. What he's doing is exposing whenever you come to Jesus with strings attached and you underestimate the power of the gospel to change you. The point of this exchange is not you can't be concerned about your parents. The point is your parents, your children, your family are never an excuse for following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus would say these words that can trouble us as well, right? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. David preached a sermon about this from John and from Mark. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I have lived this out. I'm not just a salesman. I'm a client. I have lived this out. I have told you this story of when my father came to Christ when he was 33 years of age. My grandfather, who was a very proud man, a very proud man of Anglican descent in Harbor Grace, where your, your lineage of religion was as much attached to you as anything else. And uh, Harbor Grace was nicknamed Little Ireland at one point, and my mom can still, if you give her a last name, she'll tell you if you were born into a Catholic tradition or born into an Anglican tradition. And so when my father got saved or born again, those were kind of Pentecostal or Salvation Army terms. Baptist was still relatively new at the time. My grandfather really didn't react because he didn't know what those things meant and he didn't care. Truth be told, my grandfather only went to church, only went to church on Christmas and Easter, if all the circumstances in the world were correct. He was an alcoholic. He drank a 40 ounce of whiskey every day. Every day. But when my dad got baptized and joined another church, 
I will never forget that Sunday afternoon because my grandfather went out into the backyard, dug a hole, put my father's birth certificate in that hole, covered it up, and told my dad, you just died. It was a traumatic experience for me because I was only five, almost six years of age, and I remember my grandmother and my mother and I standing out on Water Street in Harbor Grace while my father and my grandfather argued in the home and the door was open in the window and we could hear it out in the street where my grandfather disowned my father and threatened him and said, you're dead to me. And I was traumatized by that because my grandfather was a giant to me. And for three plus years, my grandfather never spoke to my dad. We would go to their home every Sunday for Sunday dinner, and we would walk in, and Pop would hug me and make a big fuss over me, and he would hug Mom, and Dad would walk up to him and extend his hand and say, Hey, Dad, and Pop would literally every week say, Who are you? My son died last week. Now, I will tell you that this war on my my grandfather, because he kept track. Because every week we'd go in, he'd say, Who are you? My son died three weeks ago. And so it, made it, it had to take effort because he could keep, he would say this every time. My son died one year and two months ago. <laughs> well, over three years later, my grandfather had a stroke and was dying. I was 12 at the time. And I remember going into his room and being very afraid. My father was up in Labrador because he worked for the phone company at that time. and I was too afraid to even look at my grandfather because I didn't know what he would do. And I remember saying, Pop, are you dying? And he said, yes, uh, Stephen, I'm dying. And I said, I don't want you to die and go to hell. I said, why can't you believe the way Dad does? And he never answered. And I remember looking over and looking into his face. And there was this big tear running down his face as he said, I don't know how. And I remember telling him, if I tell you how to believe in Jesus, will you trust in Jesus? And he said, you tell me. And young people don't ever underestimate the power of what you know. And I walked him through at that point. Some of you older people remember Romans Road. I had been taught that and I walked my grandfather through the Romans Road. in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5 and brought him all the way through and I said, Pop, would you just trust in Jesus? And he prayed with me that day. (laughs) I remember running out of that bedroom and running by my grandmother and running home to my mother and saying, Mom, Mom, you'll never, guess what happened? Pop got saved, Pop got saved. And you would think a mother would be excited and she threatened to spank me (laughs) because she didn't believe me. She's like, Stephen, do you know how hard this is on our family? And I was trying to tell her that Pop got saved, and she didn't believe me. And then I wanted to call my dad, who was up in Labrador. And so finally, after I slept on it that night and still bugged her the next day, she finally called dad, and I got dad on the phone, and I said, Dad, Pop got saved. And of course, if you know my father, now, son, you know, this is a traumatic thing in our family. He was very stoic and stuff like that. And Finally, my dad came home, and by this time, my grandfather had been moved to the hospital down in Carbonier, and my father was too afraid to go see him himself, so he took our pastor, and they went to see him, and Pastor Blackerby, Harold Blackerby, went into that room and said, Ern, your grandson says you got saved. Is that true? And he said, yes, it is. And he said, can you tell me when it happened? And I think Pastor Blackerby didn't even believe me, and he said, just recently, and then this is how I know he changed his life. And he said, now, Reverend, with all due respect, 
go and get my son and tell him to come talk to me. And my dad went in, and for the first time in years, they had a conversation. Ninety days later, my grandfather died and went to be with Jesus. See, this is what it means when you don't underestimate the power of Jesus. See, my dad in that moment, became one of my heroes because he never underestimated the power of Jesus. Dad never overestimated himself and he's never underestimated Christ. You see, folks, ultimately you have to decide who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? If Jesus Christ is God, if Jesus offers you so much more than just eternal life, it's life eternal. It's what John tells us about. Jesus comes to offer us joy, forgiveness of so much more than just our sins, but sin itself. Remember when Isaac Watts wrote that wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine. Watch now, demands my soul, my life, my all. If all this is true, then what Jesus says is totally justified. In fact, We should be shocked that the guy would even hesitate. It is an honor to lay everything down and follow Jesus, right? Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says, It's our reasonable service. Why? Because I beseech you by the mercies of God. He is the Savior who is willing and able. He never lies to you. He always keeps you. He's got your best interest and your best goals in mind. He's the Savior who will protect you. And He will always, always be with you. He makes you a son and daughter of God. He gives you everything He has in the Father. And He takes it to us. We're supposed to leave it all behind. And so for all of you young people and you young adults and you young marrieds, Bishop John Ryle said this, it's not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servants so much as the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desires to keep in touch with the world. He says that's the great rock on which thousands of young people are continually making shipwreck. I am so burdened for you not to walk away from Christ after high school, not to get disillusioned while you're in university. Ryle goes on to say, they do not object to any article of the Christian faith. They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they think it proper to have some religion. But they cannot give up their idol, the world. You see, when you understand, church, what you have in Christ, what this table is, That's why Jesus says what he does in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found and covered it up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in in search of fine pearls who, on finding the pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, if you get what you get when you get Jesus, you'll never overestimate your value and you'll never underestimate Jesus' love for you. And when you get what you have in Christ, giving up everything is giving up nothing. Conforming your life to Christ, if your estimation is right, 
You want Jesus to be the Lord of your life. You want him to be your number one priority. And you're not only willing to do this, but you'll gladly do this. And this is why I want you to understand the great power of this communion table is what Isaiah the prophet said when he says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. Now notice this. And you without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Because Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. So men and women, families, Young people, senior saints, what will you and I, will help you and I, is if we never overestimate ourselves and we never underestimate Jesus. If we come to this table and admit, I I got nothing. Nothing good I bring. I can't be good enough. I can't pay for my wrongs. I can't buy my way in. I can't erase my past. I can't control my present or even my future. But I do know this. Jesus loves me. This I know for his love and death and resurrection and Bible tell me so. And so you can have commitment to him because we can trust him. You can trust his authority over us because only Jesus can save us. You can make Jesus your priority because only Jesus is worthy. And these are the hopes that you have this morning. And I want you to remember above all things that this table is free, but not without cost. I remember listening to the Gideons once when my last ministry in in Charlottetown, we had the vice president of the Gideons come and visit us. And he told us all these wonderful stories of how men and women around the world have found Jesus in some of the most incredible ways. One of the ones that stood out to me was, was actually some prisoner had taken a Bible and actually shredded it to try and use it for sheets to roll his cigarettes. And in so doing, he got into an exchange with another prisoner uh, passing favors, and they bartered this, and so this other prisoner got some of these cigarettes, and interestingly, he noticed there was writing on them, so the prisoner decided, the other one, to unroll the cigarettes, and he read portions of the Gospel of John, and from that accepted Jesus Christ. I've never forgotten that. But I also remember what that man said. He said, I want you to know we give away these Bibles for free, but they do cost. This table says the gospel is free. But it did come at a cost. What's your estimation of Jesus? You see, listen, you don't need to earn God's love. You don't need to seek God's love. You don't need to work for God's love. In Christ, God couldn't love you more. So come to the table of the Lord. Don't overestimate yourself. And don't underestimate your Savior. And from the youngest of you to the oldest of you, if you will do that today, this will not just be, oh, it's February, we do communion again. No, this will be precious. And it will remind you, oh, what a Savior. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. And when the tempter would prevail... Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. 
For my love is often cold, but Christ will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Yes, he will hold me fast. Why? For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Hey, who are you clinging to today? Watch your estimation of Jesus. Let's pray as our elders come forward. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to just spend a few moments and point myself and my friends and my family to you. Lord, I just pray that I will now practice what I have preached. That I will come to this table and realize how great you are. And that I don't need to be great. I don't have to convince you to love me. I don't have to convince you to be good to me. Father, even though I face struggles and trials and temptations, even though life doesn't always go the way I want it to go, Lord, I never have to worry that you're mad at me or you're trying to get even with me. Oh, Father God, help the spirit of the gospel to fall on everybody here. Help the power of the gospel to stop men and women from pretending and acting. Oh, Lord, help us to stop playing church or being religious, but being sons and daughters of the King. Help our time of communion to be precious and sweet. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.